if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. You can't bake. That means you get, you can't garden. You can't love art. You can't love singing. You can't be in church choir anymore. All of these things that were the core identity parts of me, even sign language, like you can't do that. You can't like linguistics, like all of these things that were the most important parts of me, I was told to put on the cross and give to Jesus because if I was holding on to it, that was why I hadn't yet earned the miracle of heterosexuality. I had to demonize everything that was part of me, learn how to like country music, learn how to like enjoy wearing flannel, going to football and then getting hurt because I am super unathletic and not to mention football is bad for me because here I am being surrounded by all these shirtless guys that's a dangerous place for me because people will find out that I'm attracted to them no matter how much I try to hide I'm trying to change the core of everything that I am then when I finally leave conversion therapy what's left welcome to the focus on your own family podcast fundamentalist evangelicalism impacted a generation We survived physical, psychological, mental, and spiritual abuse. We survived the Focus on the Family movement, and we want to talk about it. Trigger warning, guests will be sharing stories of domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Please welcome Sam. This is his story. Hey, Sam. Hi. Hey. Okay, for everybody that's listening, I have Sam, and Sam is formerly Mormon. I found him on TikTok and he showed up in my FYP and I was instantly captivated. So I would love for you, Sam, to introduce Uh yourself and also who you are on TikTok because I think that's so important because that way people will understand why is somebody that was Mormon Uh on focus on your own family? Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to be here. I love your account. I am a conversion therapy survivor, and I'm a facilitator for a group of CT survivors. Because of that, I decided to go on TikTok and create an account, Conversion Therapy Sucked. And on my account, Conversion Therapy Sucked, I just want people to know that they're not alone. If they need a place where they can heal, then we offer that every single week. We offer resources for each other. And it's been fascinating to see. It's it's just been crazy as I get into the world of TikTok. It's fascinating that every single week when I talk with conversion therapy survivors, I hear these horrible gut-wrenching stories of, of what it was like to go conversion therapy. And then I see deconstruction TikTok, ex-evangelical TikTok, and I hear so many of the same stories. Like it's eerie 
how similar these stories are. It's like the only difference is that you just put the gay la- label on our experience and you just didn't have that label. And then it just came out through different avenues. But it's just so sad to see all of the pain and suffering and manipulation that we go through because of our religion and trying to find love and belonging. And so I'm I'm just really excited to be here and, and see where the overlaps are. Yeah. One of the things that when I initially sought out to do this podcast, I had previously on another podcast that I have with my friend Joshua mm-hmm. interviewed a wonderful person by the name of Zachary Heath. And we talked about conversion therapy. Uh, we we briefly talked about it, actually. And as I sought out to do this, that was one of the things that I needed to call to attention because there are a lot of mainstream therapists mm-hmm. and counselors that are still unaware of this practice. In fact, there are people inside, even inside of these religious constructs that still don't even really know about it. Okay. Honestly, before before I knew what this was, I thought conversion therapy was just help for people that like fell away from <laughs> their from yeah. their religion, right? Because oh, yeah. well, conversion that's something that happens when you accept Jesus into your heart. Right. You convert. Right. And I didn't understand. I mean, obviously now I do and I'm recognizing that even even though I talk to people that have survived conversion therapy, I have such little understanding about it and the nuances of it. I've been doing a lot of studying since I talked to you because I really want to be able to do the tie-in with Mormon Mm -hmm. and evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so just, I'm going to, for people, I'm going to give a brief history. So Sigmund Freud was really sort of the, the author of this. He posted a lot of different theories on it, but the biggest one was the Oedipus complex. And he And for those of you that don't know what the Oedipus complex is, you can look that up. I am not going to go into that. However, (laughs) he said that homosexuality was because men didn't overcome this overbearing mom. And so for men that lived in a house with maybe a single mom or a mom that was more domineering than the father was. So maybe the father just had more gentle qualities about him and the mom was just more of a strong leader. However, that worked into that particular person's life. That was the reason why they were homosexual. And it was, it was a choice. It was something that they felt like they could be converted out of. But then in came a person by the name of Joseph Nicolasi and Joseph Nicolasi did reparative therapy. And it was this idea of like a pseudoscientific practice of attempting to change an individual's sexual orientation from non-hetero to hetero and also their gender identity. And here's where the tie-in is. For those of you that understand the history of Dr. James Dobson and focus on the family, he had a dog named Siggy. He loved himself some Sigmund Freud. The interesting thing is, is that James Dobson talks about the fact that he had a mom that beat him with her girdle and talks about how 
that had a tremendous impact on his life. But when he does talk about that, he does it sort of tongue in cheek, kind of like, ha ha ha, this happened. It's no big deal. I survived it. Um, but the mom was very domineering and used um, intimate objects, if you will, wow. to discipline him. So Dobson hears Joseph Nicolasi. He reads a book, he hears him, and all of a sudden, Dobson's like, I love Sigmund Freud. And here's this guy. I, I want to platform this person. So the two of them join forces and you have evangelical conversion therapy. And that is in a nutshell. There's so much more to that because you've got Exodus International, you've got Love One Out, you've got North Star, all of that, right? But so this is such a condensed version. Now, Joseph Nicolasi, oh, also went over to the Mormon side and influenced that as well. And I I wanted to bring Sam on here because I want everybody to understand that conversion therapy is conversion therapy. Like there's there was not a difference between the evangelical and the Mormon aside from the doctrine the religious language that was used. So Mormons have Joseph Smith, whereas evangelicals had a, a whole other weird spiritual side to it. Conversion therapy is at the top of my list of priorities to expose, to have people on that have survived it, because it is, in my opinion, one of the worst atrocities that somebody can do on another human being. And Sam is going to go into detail of what he went through and what he survived. So, um, yeah, I feel like I've talked enough. <laughs> so <Are> you kidding. <laughs> here I am over, I'm over here and I'm like, I just went to a conference where we had a symposium of other survivors talk about this. And when we were wanting to talk about the history, a lot of us were like, it's hard for me to talk about this because it just feels like life, right? It just feels like, well, everyone's been through this, but how do you explain it to someone who has it? And I'm like, why didn't we have Stephanie there to just go through all of it? Because that would have been that would have been so nice to have had you there. Thank you so much for that. No, that was really great. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to those that have reached out with your support, whether you have left a review. If you haven't left a review, this would be a really, really good time to leave a review. Read every single one of them. So thank you. And for those that are subscribers to my Patreon, thank you. It means so much. One of the new features that I am adding for my paid Patreon subscribers is the chat feature. And this is just a way that we can all continue this conversation that we're having in the podcast. And if you are not a paid subscriber, unfortunately, the chat feature won't be available to you, but you can be a free subscriber and you'll just get the weekly newsletters. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. Let's start at, you were raised into a Mormon family, and you, mm -hmm. from what I understand, you you liked being Mormon. You were fine with it. 
It's interesting. I do think that this actually should brought up. I wasn't thinking of going there. I really wish people would understand the unfortunate overlaps of racism and white supremacy that Mm -hmm. have gone into the evangelical movement and conversion therapy. Something that you mentioned reminded me of a song that I sing as a Mormon. I was in church and we sing the song, I am a child of God with parents kind and dear. That's a, a hymn we have. And I remember being this, this little boy in, in the Mormon pews and crying and being angry because I didn't have parents kind and dear. I was raised by a single Latina mom, right? And she sent me to church. She wasn't in church with me, but she sent me to church so I could grow up around other religious men so I could learn how to be a man. Because there was this idea that if you don't train a boy right, he'll become gay. Because it was almost like you have to learn how to be. When you talked about overbearing mom, it just was frustrating me to to remember that and then to think of like how many of our black fathers, black and brown, you know, POC fathers are in jail. And here are all these kids being raised without fathers. And according to this doctrine, all of those kids should be gay by default. And yet they're not. And so it's it's conversion therapy was all of these instances where you're told something that's on its surface maybe might be oh, true. Like you, you don't really second guess it because there's this surface level, just homophobia rampant in our society. But then when you're the person who has to actually deal with it to try to un, try to root out the homosexuality in you, the logic doesn't work out. And And then you have to figure out, well, what do I do with this? Because I'm trying. But the things that I'm told to try aren't working. And of course, you can't question the doctrine, right? Because, y- you know, you're there because you believe. You're there because you want to change. You're there because you want to please God. And especially when you're Mormon, God has, you created this father figure. Like we are literally told we are his literal spirit children and we want to go home to our father. And so here I was, this, this little Mexican boy among all these white boys. They had their fathers and I didn't. And so the only father figure that I had was my heavenly father. So if I didn't learn how to become straight, I would lose the only consistently affirming parent I had ever had in my life. So it was an intense need to figure out how I, air quotes, became gay and how to uproot it because I just had to get home again because I wanted to be home in his arms so bad. Right. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that Dobson talks about the the most, like there, he has a whole book, Bringing Up Boys, and he has Bringing Up Girls too, and that's a whole other thing. But what's interesting is Dobson doesn't really talk about girls having attraction to girls. That's mm-hmm. something he doesn't care about. Yeah, it's specifically boys having mm-hmm. attraction to boys because it to him, attacks the masculinity, the hyper-masculinity, the, yes. the social constructs of the perfect white American family. Right. And if a boy is gay and mm-hmm. he marries a man, then what does that say about the power and control dynamic? What ends up happening is we lose as a society the patriarchy because men aren't in charge anymore. And the patriarchy is very important, obviously, to Dobson because that is what keeps him where he is at. So 
he specifically attacks homosexual males versus females because of 100%. that. What, what you just said reminded me of a conversation we had in group where it, it's, it's hard because when you're in a group of conversion therapy survivors, it's really hard to get people who were assigned female at birth because of what you just mentioned, because so many of us men were forced into conversion therapy. But if you're a woman, it's just kind of assumed, eh, well, you know, whatever. And, and there's not as much stigma about that, even though they do exist and they are sent to conversion therapy. It's not at the same level of intensity of like seeking those homosexuals out and forcing change on them. And there was this conversation we had where there was uh, one woman there and then everyone else was was presenting as male. And we were talking about how frustrating it was that we were told to do things that would essentially use women as if they were property or props or objects to consume. And it was frustrating because we would be told, just try out a woman. Like she's something you can just try and then discard when you're done. And all of the people in the room were nodding and having this disgusted look on this face. Like it was just so upsetting to hear this advice in conversion therapy about how we were supposed to treat women because this, because we don't sexualize women. This has just not been our experience to ever see them that way. They've been seen as friends, as confidants, as allies, but not as objects, right? We've been taught this, but it's just never really felt something we could sink our teeth in because that desire behind it to, to have them in our arms was just not there, right? Unless like, oh, I love you, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Yeah. And so here we are nodding our heads and the one female in the group, her eyes were just wide. And she's like, this is news to me. I was never once told in conversion therapy to try out a guy. Like that was never something I was told. I was just told to be more meek, told to be more modest, told to stop being so, you know, assertive, you know, you need to be more humble, like all of these tropes about the way that women are supposed to behave and assuming that she's not behaving appropriate. And so that's why she's gay. And so she is just shocked at the differences between genders because it's just so strict about you have to be this way, you have to be that way. And if you don't fit into the gender norms, that must be why you, air quotes, became gay. It's incredible even hearing that for me because it gives such a, it gives a dark insight into the hyper-masculine, hyper-male, uh, patriarchal construct. And mm -hmm. this, this idea that you just try out yeah. a woman because mm -hmm. purity culture grooms us, grooms us women to be seen and not heard, to keep our, you know, our voices low, our head low, and to be meek, to be mm -hmm. humble. Mm -hmm. And this idea of just, just try her out. Mm -hmm. Try it out. See if it works. Mm -hmm. We're discarded. Mm -hmm. There's no value. And I think that that speaks volumes to what we deal with in society today and how and it, it's, there's like an issue. Like you go to the store and you just pick one up, you know, it's yeah. just like, you're just like yeah. issued a woman. And yeah. damn, you're not the first one to say that. I've been talking to others that survived evangelical conversion therapy and they say the same thing just go and try out a woman yep. when 
the the interesting thing is they were also raised with this idea that you remain pure until you're married. And mm -hmm. so what all of a sudden the rules, they're not valid anymore because mm -hmm. now, now you just got to try it out. We're going to do anything, anything possible to convert you. Mm -hmm. um, so just find a woman, try her out, even though you're not married to her, even though you have no, no intent on marrying her. Like, who cares? Even though she's being told that if she does that, she's going to go to hell. She's spoiled. She's a chewed up piece of gum. She's a bruised rose. All of these things, right? But nope, you're supposed to go hunt for her like a predator. Yep. And try her out. I, I'm fascinated that you went to the grocery store analogy because one of the guys <laughs> said, are women food? And he just like screamed it into the, into the screen. And all of us were like, yep, so upsetting that we would just treat them there like food. And it also speaks to the level of hypocrisy because there's only a handful of Mormon people in my conversion therapy survivors group. The, the vast majority, um, there's like one or two Catholics, but the majority of everyone else was evangelical. And it's just fascinating that all of us had so many similar experiences where here we were trying to live by every single rule of God because, you know, if God can work miracles, if everything is, is, is capable through his power, then all of the science telling us we can't change has to be wrong. We just have to prove to God that we are worthy of his blessing and his miracle of earning our, our heterosexuality, right? And so here we are following every single rule, becoming obsessive compulsive about all of these rules that we absolutely have to follow. And then here's this therapist or this pastor telling us to break the law of chastity, to be unchaste. We're like guarding our thoughts let alone even considering taking action that is just so abhorrent. Like, how do you even deal with this, this authority figure telling you this huge hypocrisy? And what do you deal with that? It just breaks your soul. And they just, they just systematically try to take your identity and break it apart. And you have to be humble because it doesn't matter that it's breaking rules. It doesn't matter that it doesn't make any sense. And it's completely contrary to what you've been taught. They are the figure. You have to humble yourself. And the reason you're gay is because you're too prideful. What are you to do? And that's unfortunate that so many people do do what they say and then marry people under false pretenses because it'll get fixed when you use this person to become straight. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about like when, when you were talking about all of the rules, I mean, it's scrupulosity and it's this idea that religion becomes the very thing that you are obsessed over. So yeah. for those that are um, are on the spectrum, there's a word called perseverative behavior. And perseverative behavior is something that you have to do. Like if you don't do it, it's not obsessive compulsive disorder. That is so, that's completely separate. Um, perseverative behavior is something that you, if you don't do it, you can't function outside of it. Like you cannot push it back True perseverative behavior means that something that impairs you from living your normal life, from living your day to day. And that is what scrupulosity turns into. And I can't imagine the mental torture for people that are neurodivergent that go through this because it's like feeding them more perseverative behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about the scrupulosity that you were being indoctrinated to possess. And you're highly, you're, you're completely accurate. Uh, the majority of the people 
in the group are neurodivergent. Not all of us, but the majority are. And it makes sense because if you were forced in conversion therapy, it's a lot easier to detach the trauma because it wasn't your choice. It was something forced on you. You know that it was wrong and you got out as soon as you could. You were fighting it. And so my group would be helpful, but my group, people don't really stay in my group very long when they're like that because they kind of get the healing knowing that they're not alone, knowing that there are people who went exactly through they did and they move through pretty quick. But the people who are there every single week are typically neurodivergent. And it's frustrating because you played a part in your own trauma because you were told one thing and you believed it. And that was the problem. And there's a reason why the World Health Organization calls conversion therapy torture. And it's not because conversion therapy is isolated to electroshock therapy. And that's where most people go in their minds. But when you look at the research, there's this term called SOGICE, which is S-O-G-I-C-E. And it stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender, Identity, Change, Efforts. That's the official name for conversion therapy. It's literally any effort to try to change who you are. And what I love to tell people who join the group is that two things are going to happen. They're going to feel like they don't belong because they're going to hear someone whose trauma sounds valid to them, but they don't think their trauma is valid. And so they'll have this huge imposter syndrome, even though everyone else clearly thinks this person belongs. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that happens is that their trauma is going to come flailing back because the only way you can deal with conversion therapy is disassociation. It's the only way because what other option do you have but have it destroy your mind? And just become this person and then have to bury down everything that who you truly are. And so a lot of us, when we leave conversion therapy, have no idea who we are because who we were was completely demonized. I was told you can't dance. That made you gay. You can't bake. That made you gay. You can't garden. You can't love art. You can't love singing. You can't be in church choir anymore. You can't. All of these things that were the core identity parts of me even sign language, like you can't do that. You can't like linguistics. You like all of these things that were the most important parts of me, I was told to put on the cross and give to Jesus because if I was holding on to it, that was why I hadn't yet earned the miracle of heterosexuality. And so I had to demonize everything that was part of me, learn how to like country music, learn how to like enjoy wearing flannel, going to football and then getting hurt because I am super unathletic. Right? <laughs> and not to mention football is bad for me because here I am being surrounded by all these shirtless guys. And that's not a, that's a dangerous place for me because people will find out that I'm attracted to them no matter how much I try to hide it. So I'm trying to change the core of everything that I am. And then when I finally leave conversion therapy, what's left? Because now all the things I used to love are now part of my triggers because they were demonized. So it's just this whole, like, what do you do? You have to build your life up from scratch, much like when you leave the church. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about that prior to recording that when I left, when I escaped, I did not know my favorite color. I didn't know what my favorite song was. Like, I could, because I could like something. But then everything would be filtered through what will they think about it if I like this. Mm -hmm. So 
I just kind of put that on the back burner. What I what I tell people is that who I became before I escaped was a Pinterest board of different people's attributes yeah. that I was told I was supposed to be like. I was supposed yeah. to emulate. So at any point, I could say Pinterest board for mom. Okay, um, this person and this person, this person, this person, all these different attributes, Pinterest board for wife right? Mm -hmm. And we've got Proverbs 31 woman, we've got meek, mild, submissive. And all of those things swirled inside of my brain. And when I escaped, I had to begin the painful process of slowly deleting every single one of those one by one. And when I mean deleting, I mean deconstructing why was it that that felt like a good idea? You know, why was it that I was attracted to that? Why was it that I wanted that while simultaneously rebuilding, right? Yeah. While saying, I like the color emerald green. Why do I like the color emerald green? I see the similarities. I see the tie-in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you said that I would love for you to talk more about when we were talking prior to this mm-hmm. was the manipulation through prayer. Yeah. And I want you to talk about that because prayer for those that escaped the evangelical movement, we were told prayer is our weapon, prayer is our tool. Mm -hmm. And we were taught, especially for those that were in leadership, I was a worship leader in a mega church. I learned very quickly how to manipulate people. If I wasn't good at manipulating, I wouldn't have been in the position where I was. Um, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. Mind you, I was, I wasn't cognizant of that, that I was just being a good Christian, which says yeah. a lot right there. Yeah. But <sighs> we would pray things over people. And I remember people praying things over me that were so obviously their will, not only for my life, but also for their life. And they were transferring that to me. So I set you up and you know exactly what I'm asking you to talk about. So I'd love for you to talk about how prayer plays a powerful role in conversion therapy. And it's something that no one talks about and that no one makes the connection or distinction with. It's sad. Um, I'm reminded of three specific experiences. Um, there was an evening I heard someone from my group talk about what it was like to, for them to go through conversion therapy. They, I, I had official therapists, right? Of, of course, it happens in your churches, but for me, I did specifically have a therapist. But this friend of mine, um, his pastor was his um, conversion therapy therapist, taught him how to stop speaking so effeminate, how to lower his voice, things like that. Just this huge manipulative relationship. And uh, he was studying to become a pastor with this, with this guy. And his pastor outed him in front of a live television evangelical um, TV show that he was helping with. And the pastor says, this fellow is, is gay. We need to pray the devil out of him and cast the demon out of, of homosexuality. So on live television, it's like 400 people put their hands on my friend and start speaking in tongues and start casting the devil out. And 
just how traumatic that was to just imagine that not only 400 people, but now on national television, everyone's watching this devil get cast out of him. And of course it didn't work because there was no devil to cast out. But then because it didn't work, his pastor said, you need to cast the devil out of yourself every day for half an hour. And so he did every single day for years. He would say, I cast the devil of homosexuality out of you. I cast it just for, for half an hour every single day, you know, demeaning himself, claiming that, that he's broken and that there's something wrong with him and that needs to be cast out in the name of Jesus. And hearing him talk about it, it was so sad because I know him. He's a very happy, go lucky person. And to see the deadpan look on his face as he was describing it, you knew he was trying really hard not to connect to emotion. Because if he did, he wouldn't be able to tell that story. He would just break down. And uh, so that that really got me that that story of of how common that's a common common experience for evangelicals. And it's so sad because that's why so many people who are conversion therapy survivors don't recognize that they are because it was just praying, right? You would never think I'm a conversion therapy survivor with that experience because you think of electroshock therapy. You think of, oh, I have to be in a therapist room like I was. You think the only people who are valid are the people who are shocked and traumatized by actual clinical therapists. But then when this person shares the story, we were all in tears just hearing how painful this was. And it reminds me of how in my group called Evergreen, because it was the Mormon version of, of Love One Out, we were told, because um, it was this organization that winks and nods with the Mormon church, even though it's officially can't be. But even though apostles and, and leaders of the church would talk at our conferences, right? And they would tell us, you know, brethren, I know it's hard, but until you can show Jesus that you your knees are callous and your hands are bloody from being so deep in prayer. God is not going to give you that blessing of heterosexuality. And he told us that was the degree of prayer that we had to have if we wanted to earn that miracle. And there was a brother of mine who, who said that during one of those prayers, he, he felt that God was going to allow him to ask for the righteous desire of his heart which was to have a single day, a whole day where he would be free of homosexuality and he wouldn't have to deal with it. And he could just have a single day. And he, he's like, are you sure, God? Are you sure this is what I can have? And he felt like Heavenly Father was going to bless his desire. And he chose the day. He, he felt like that was the day God was going to give him his miracle, even if it was for a day to give him the strength to keep fighting for the rest of his life. And he woke up that morning, was so excited, and he's walking to class, and this really hot guy with big muscles walks by, and immediately he felt desire. And here he is telling us about this, and he starts crying because he blamed himself. And he thought that he was just so evil that even though God blessed him with this day, he ruined it within the first hour. And I was just... If he can't earn it, what, ch- what chance do I have? You know, it was just so, it was just so sad. It felt like you were, you were fighting a losing battle and every day you fought, the goalposts kept moving further down the line and it got harder and harder in every day. And it got to the point where like I would develop headaches and I wasn't able to cry. My body physically could not do it. I knew I needed to cry, 
but like the trauma was just so intense that I was just in yeah. survival mode that I, I couldn't access tears. So yeah, the, the prayer was just super manipulative. Like it was on you because the prayers wouldn't work, which meant you had to do it harder, which meant you were the problem, not God. And so you just had yeah. to do it harder and harder and harder. That feels so similar to uh, fundamentalists, you know, just to evangelicalism. Um, mm-hmm. We learn how at such a young age to spiritually bypass everything. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if we were dealing with anxiety or depression, see, even <laughs> even how I say it mm-hmm. to this day, if we were dealing with, let's mm-hmm. just break that statement down. No, I have anxiety because I'm a human. And I wasn't taught that anxiety is actually a tool, that anxiety is not bad. Anxiety is your body's way of saying something's off. Mm-hmm. Why don't you check in with me? It's all it is. But it's when it controls your life that it becomes a problem. However, if anything in our life caused us to ask questions, that was a sin against God. We were told we had to go to the altar. You have to ask for the spirit of peace because you have the spirit of anxiety. So it's called binding and losing. So in the name of Jesus, I bind the spirit of anxiety mm-hmm. in the name and I cast it to I cast it to hell in the name of Jesus, or I cast it to you know to Satan in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in the name of Jesus, I loose the spirit of peace over mm-hmm. my body. And what we would do, all of us evangelicals became so masterful at mimicking mm-hmm. what we thought peace looked like that we pretended and we masked peace because if there was a moment where we showed or demonstrated that we still had anxious thoughts then we were considered unrighteous Mm -hmm. and we would have to go back to the altar and so instead of having to repeat the altar over and over and over that's why so many people ask for jesus to come in their life because they're they're told that once Jesus comes in their life, once you ask Jesus into your heart, um, that you are you won't have those things, and and if you do, they'll sure. be easy to get rid of, because mm-hmm. you'll be living a lifestyle that will be free of all of that that won't cause that. But um, anyway, so that just that brought that to my to my mind that it's interesting that you were using that because that is such an evangelical practice of masking and performing like i've i've had to since escaping i've had to really go through and learn what things mean i i know i've said this before at least on another podcast but when i this was just a few months ago my husband and i were just driving it was it was like a it wasn't even a thing like it was just a, a normal day nothing exciting was going on and i took a deep breath and i let it out and my husband looks over he's like are you okay and i said I'm happy. I'm ha- I'm happy. And he just looked at me. He's like, uh, okay. And I said, no, I've, I've never been happy before. Yeah. I didn't know that's what this felt like to be happy because I was only ever allowed to have one feeling. And that is the joy of the Lord. There is mm-hmm. no other thing. Um, peace wasn't a feeling. Mm-hmm. 
peace, I, I don't know, peace always felt arbitrary, but like happiness, well, happiness is something that only happens in the flesh. You, you can't have anything of the flesh. Joy is a spirit. Happiness is the flesh. Happiness is like lust and desire. Happy was, uh, joy was eternal. Happy was temporary. And we never wanted temporary feelings. And it's so crazy to hear you say all of this and be like, yeah, that's exactly what I was taught. We just had different names for it. Yeah. We, we had different names, different scripture, but it's like exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's the, the crossover mm-hmm. inside of therapy like this. Because like there, in the Mormon faith, there is a lot of crossover with oh, yeah. um, just because it's it's a cult, right? So you look at like Stephen Hassan, the bite model, mm-hmm. and there, there's crossover for that. But you look at specifically this and you see where it was designed by somebody that is evangelical. Mm-hmm. And so the um, the the umbrella, if you will, not of protection for my listeners, not talking about the umbrella of protection, <laughs> the umbrella, it encompasses so much. I want to talk about because I think this is this is just so, so important. I want to talk about the different styles of therapy. I don't mm-hmm. personally want to talk to you. I want you to talk about if you will. So there's reparative therapy, mm-hmm. there's aversion, mm-hmm. hypnotic, and reparative. And reparative yeah. is the one by jo- Joseph Nicolasi. Yeah. Aversion and behavior feels like mm-hmm. it was all under reparative. Is that correct? No. Or- what it is, is it's unfortunately a game of cat and mouse. So, so Freud had his theories, right? And mm-hmm. then you had, uh, are you familiar with the term trephination? I'm not. So, uh, I mean, they did this for a lot of uh, mental health patients, but because, you know, uh, homosexuality was pathologized, one way that they thought you could cure homosexuality was by taking an ice pick and putting it in, uh, putting through someone's eye into their brain and you would make a hole in their brain and you would release pressure and then maybe they wouldn't be gay. They did this for other clinical problems, um, mental health problems. So they thought that would be one way to, to cure it. Obviously it didn't. Um, and so they would try things like electroshock therapy. Um, there's a book that I could recommend. It's something like, um, the fight for gay rights in the Mormon church that has two specific sections of the old and new versions of reparative therapy. And when they talk about electroshock therapy, there were different ways you could do it, but they talk about a guy who had to hook up um, an electrode to his arm and then they would show him a pornographic image and he would have to shock himself. Uh, until he would no longer pair that stimuli with arousal. And unfortunately, he did it so many times. His arm, they describe it looking like a hamburger because it had been so destroyed but from the electroshock. Um, and unfortunately, it is still happening. There is a, uh, a person who comes every, well, not she doesn't come every week, but there's a person who shows up who who did survive electroshock therapy. So it's not like, you know, we did this, then they did this, then they did this. It's more like, if this doesn't work and you know this doesn't work, then you're going to try the next step. And if this yeah. doesn't work, then you're going to try the next step type of thing. Um, but as a whole, a lot of people are learning things that conversion therapy doesn't work. So then they have to recreate themselves and try something new. And so electroshock therapy obviously doesn't work. So then they move on to things like, uh, and so that was very like behavioral model type of thing, pathologizing homosexuality, thinking that it's like a mental health problem. And you just need to fix it through like classical conditioning, stuff like that. When none of that works, they would do models like what Dobson or or Nicolosi would teach, which is saying that 
you became gay because like your family environment, like uh, overbearing mother, things like that. And so the the idea of reparative therapy is when you repair the connections that are wrong, like using a family model, like if the family has a discord between the mother and the father, that then you have a child who's gay and the gay is the manifestation of the family who's broken. So you fix the family, you fix the relationship between the father and the mother, the mother needs to be more submissive, the father needs to be more domineering, then suddenly the gay kid is no longer gay because it's the symptom of the family. And so mm-hmm. you're repairing the damage to the family, repairing the damage to the, your relationships. And so the idea is that you would, and so what they do is they grab like valid theories from psychology, like family relations theory, cognitive behavioral theory. They take all those models and then try to perform it on you in the hopes that you know that when you get better, then you're no longer gay. It doesn't work, obviously. So then you need to yeah. keep, keep trying doing new. So it's, it's a series of investigating your life, finding any possible problem or trauma that you might have, working on that trauma, but then you work on that trauma under the umbrella of, and this is why you're gay. So you absolutely have to fix that trauma. And then the majority of people like Nicolosi would say, the reason you're gay is because you were abused as a child sexually. And so you you had this trauma that you need to undo. You need to accuse your father because it's probably your father who abused you. He's the reason why you're gay. And so several of us were told, even though you don't remember it, it's because it's repressed. And then you would try to talk with your therapist and be like, let's find out what was it like being abused by your father, even though you, you weren't. Like, what was it like? And so you're having this idea of, I guess I was, and then trying to create these memories that don't exist. Then you have to confront your father in front of your whole family. Obviously, it's destroying your family relationships because these things, in many cases, most cases, didn't actually happen. Um, they try those things. So you're trying to repair the relationships under the guise that that will fix you. And there's aversion therapy, which is things like my husband did, where you have like, it's it's a lesser version of electroshock therapy, but electroshock therapy would be an aversive therapy. And so mm-hmm. my husband would have like, and several people in my group did in Evergreen, you would have a rubber band around your wrist and then you would snap yourself every time you would have a dirty thought. And I'm sure evangelicals did that, whether they were yep. straight or not. Yep. <laughs> right? yep. So we would do that it too. Was, it was more for swearing mm-hmm. um, and then just like other behavior, but it was- yes. Swearing, I think that's why I love talking about deconstruction with evangelicals because you see how many overlaps there are. They're like, oh yeah, I did that too. That's a, a form of aversion therapy. I just did it to not be gay. You just did it to not whatever sin you could try to think of in, according to your church. It's interesting too that evangelicals, it's like very masochistic mm-hmm. and sadistic that mm-hmm. there has to be a physical pain associated with a negative behavior. It can't just be like, oh, that's interesting. That thought that floated in my brain. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look at that with curiosity, work through it so it doesn't come back or have the acknowledgement that not every thought I think is true. Um, that. Yeah. You have those. You don't need to punish yourself for the thoughts that you have. Like you don't need to have a, a pain associated with something because pain when you have pain your body goes into fight or flight fight flight Mm -hmm. fight flight freeze fawn correct and 
As soon as you do that, your body's like, hey, I haven't evolved since the beginning of time. So I perceive a woolly mammoth to be chasing me. Mm -hmm. And that stress, that cortisol that your body goes under, even with just the snap of a rubber band, your body is in a fully like hyper aroused stress state. And unless you work through that, unless you allow yourself to complete that stress cycle, so by running or doing an activity that you enjoy something, then you are in a constant state of hyper arousal as far as your sensory nervous system is concerned. And and that's what I can imagine everybody in conversion therapy is sitting through, which means you're jumpy. Yes. It's how CPTSD mm -hmm. becomes what it is. 100%. And I like that you called out the antithesis of shaming and all of these aversive therapies that you do, whether you're a conversion therapy survivor or evangelical trying to, to force yourself to be more righteous. The antithesis of that is curiosity. And I love that because there's a, a TikToker that I follow. I forget his account's name right now, but I was talking with him on a live about the differences between ethical therapy and conversion therapy because they keep moving the, the goalposts. Mm -hmm. We know reparative therapy doesn't work. So now they're calling it currently cultural, contextual sensitivity therapy, right? And so they, they're trying to say, oh, we're leaning into it. We understand um, homosexuality doesn't go away. But let's see how we can lean into your culture, which is your religion, while also trying to find a way to live righteously, right? They try to have their cake and eat it too. And the difference there is that they still say, Here's the right way. There's a right way and a wrong way. Your way is wrong. Let's see how we can get you to where you're supposed to go versus real therapy, which would just say, hey, how does that feel for you? What do you think about it? Where do you want to go? What feels right right now? You want to go here? Great. Let's go there. Doesn't feel right anymore. Cool. Let's go another direction. It's very client based, very willing to be wrong, very learning and growth focused. Versus you must be this black and white, I already know the answer for you and you must conform to the answer versus seeking for truth. And mm -hmm. I think that is the core of good therapy and the core of, I would say, good religion. A good religion would say, how do we love God? How can we get to know God better? Very open, very willing to be flexible, very willing to be wrong because you know that's part of growth versus this is the way it is. And if you don't do it that way, you're wrong and you need to feel bad about it. Mm hmm. When we did the pre-interview, you were talking about how you were handed like porn magazines mm -hmm. and just go have it. All the things that we're told are absolute abominations and yeah. sin and everything. They're like, try on a woman. Here's a bunch of magazines. Go have fun. Like, mm -hmm. What's sad is the therapist who, so I didn't get the, he told me to buy them on my own, which was its own like, <laughs> oh my God, I cannot do that. Uh, so I just want to, cause we name names. Um, there's a therapist at Brigham Young University called Mike Buxton. He was the one who told me to buy a dirty magazine. He was also the one who told me that I needed to fly to Mexico because that's where my biological father is and go fishing with him. And that would repair my relationship with my long lost father and help me be more straight. Um, and he was mad at me when my dad didn't like the idea of fishing with me because clearly that meant I didn't push it hard enough. I wasn't assertive enough because boys become men when they fish with their dads. He was clearly obsessed with fishing. And 
it's interesting that several other Mormon um, conversion therapy survivors also saw Mike Buxton, who is still a practicing therapist, who knows better, who is practicing unethically. Like, I, I would love to see him in front of a board trying to rationalize why telling someone to break the most sacred laws of their faith to break the law of chastity is a good method for them changing their sexual orientation, let alone he knows you can't change your sexual orientation. Like, it's completely unethical and he should be sued. I just haven't pursued it. But it's fascinating how many of us actually went to Mike Buxton. Wow. And he's been a board member, I think, maybe not of North or North Star, but I know that I've researched him before and he's been a head figure there. So going fishing with your dad is what makes you heterosexual. That's fantastic news. Right. That's great. Good good to know that. It's interesting. I love that you mentioned group therapy because the group therapy and the hypnosis, they're all different parts of, like you could say, behavioral aversion or reparative therapy. They all kind of have some overlap on how, what they think they, they do. There's also the conversion camps, which is definitely group therapy. And they try to be trauma informed. But there's a, a person in my group who went to one of these conversion camps, which claims to be trauma-informed, called Journey into Manhood, where they take this form of therapy called drama therapy, which you actually need to have a ton of credentials in order to practice ethically. But what they would do is, again, from the model of reparative therapy, they would say, hey, what's some trauma in your life? Oh, you actually are a survivor of sexual assault as a kid. Well, that must be why you're gay. So let's relive your trauma in front of all the group of men. Let's reenact your trauma so you can confront it and then no longer be gay because of it. And so now you're forced, because you're in this conversion camp at Journey into Manhood, you are watching someone reenact their sexual assault. And this is supposed to help you not be gay anymore rather than just traumatize you. And so they claim to be trauma-informed because they're addressing trauma but they're going absolutely against all the tenets of what you would think a trauma-informed therapist would do. Whoa. And they're still doing Journey into Manhood. And for me, yeah, I love that your mouth is, is just dropped. For me, I'm actually glad that I went to a group called Evergreen and all of us were just talking about our experiences because that was when I started to realize what was actually going on. I had to face what was going on. Because there were these older men who would consistently come in. They were married, had done everything they were supposed to, had kids, had their jobs. They were on meds. They were in multiple group therapies. They were in Sexaholics Anonymous because they thought all of us were sexaholics. They thought we were all addicts. They used the addiction model on us, thinking that that was somehow... They thought we were addicted to sex, even though like, I wasn't. Like I was perfectly chaste, and I was really proud of that. And like, because how many men do you honestly know that could actually have said that they were chaste? Heterosexual men. No, you know, they touched themselves. And I was very proud of the fact that I wasn't. And that's also what confused me because I'm like, I'm literally following every rule and I'm still gay. So what else can I do? Right. But here I was in this group hearing these older men who were 30, 40 years older, and they were talking about how their lives were hell. They didn't like their wife. They wanted to cheat on them. Several of them would cheat on them multiple times. And I would just see how miserable these men were and how hard they had tried at first and how life had just broken them down. And I saw in them my future. And I, it scared me because I knew I would have to marry under false pretenses if I did what I was being told to do and that I was going to become just like these men. 
And so for me, that was the beginning of the end because I vowed I could not use a woman that way. I could not hurt my children that way. And so I sought out a specialist in, in Provo, Utah named Jeff Robinson because he had a more trauma and he actually is trauma informed. And so what he thinks is his theory says that you were classically conditioned to become gay. And because you were different from all the other boys, when you emerged in your sexuality, what was different from you was still the other boys. And so you became attracted to them. But for the boys, what was different was the girls. So they became attracted to the girls. And so what you need to do is just like the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You've heard it a million times. So I could say Rudolph the Red-Nosed. And your first thought is reindeer. Reindeer. Right? And so he says, you've thought about men so many times, it's an automatic response. So what you need to do is recognize that being straight is like learning a brand new song called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Buffalo. It's going to be weird. It's going to feel maybe even gross because who wants to be with a buffalo? And it doesn't matter. You just need to keep singing the song. And eventually, that song will be so natural for you, you'll keep singing that song. And yes, every now and then, because it's deeply ingrained in you, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is going to come out. And you just need to not be so hypercritical on yourself, not be so obsessed. You need to be more relaxed with yourself and move on when you sing the reindeer song and then keep singing the buffalo song. And that's going to be you for the rest of your life. So even though I'm in, in the therapy room with a specialist, admitting to me I will never get rid of homosexuality, I'm just like, so you're actually telling me that my life of being this man who's going to cheat on my, on my life is something I need to accept and I just need to move on with that. Are you freaking kidding me? And what's interesting is because I had never heard of, co- of um, cognitive theory models, like you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of that before. And so as he was explaining like how I became gay, right, according to his model, it kind of hit me. I've been singing the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Mormon song my whole life. I've been singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Mormon because it was, being Mormon was my way to avoid racism. Because because Mormons think the more righteous you are, the more white you become. So Mm -hmm. being more righteous was my way to escape racism. Being more righteous was a way for me to finally have a father figure. Being more Mormon was a way for me to not be bullied and to no longer be gay. My whole life was this mini conversion therapy preparation. And I've been singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Mormon my whole life. And if I can try singing a different song, what could my life be like? Maybe I need to give it a try because if the church is true, repentance is always there, but I will know what I'm leaving behind. I will know because I will have finally experienced how miserable my life is going to be as gay. And then I'll just go back to the church. And what's sad is that when people try that, a lot of people do, unfortunately, they don't know any other way to be, but a lot of stereotypical gay culture with a lot of hookup culture, which, I mean, if you're going from super narrow-minded, very limited Christian to hookup culture, like, oh my goodness, like that's going to break your mind and you're going to see nothing but sorrow and sadness. And so that's going to be like this self-affirming prophecy that being gay is nothing but misery. And then they go to conversion therapy thinking that that's the only way to be gay. They never have these models of someone like me who's been married to my husband for 12 years. They don't have those examples. And it's it's because of how our life is. And how our culture has been pushed to the margins. 
that all you see are the extremes. That's what evangelicalism is like for girls in purity culture. We are, when we're born, we, from the moment that we're born until the day that we are, like the moment that we're married. Yeah. We are taught and expected to be asexual. Mm -hmm. Period. Like you will have absolutely no desire whatsoever. Um, in fact, if you, we are told that if you do have any desire, you are a whore, (laughs) you are a Jezebel, you're a harlot. You aren't supposed to have any of that until you are married. And then when you're married, apparently game on, like you can have all the thoughts that you want. But the problem is, is you were told that all of that is so wrong that the shame (laughs) that we deal with mm-hmm. is something that I know all of us will be working through in some level of or another for the rest of our lives. Yes. Um and although I was not I'm not a conversion therapy survivor, I feel like I can identify yes. with some of what you're saying because of that. Like what I find interesting is sex addiction they saw was wrong. But yet they were trying to make you addicted to sex. It's so fascinating to me <laughs> that like it's it's um it's the pink elephant complex. Like we oh, you and I have talked about that before. Like the pink mm-hmm. elephant complex. Like that's what that's what we were given as women. Like don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. And that's what you're given in conversion therapy. Don't think about it. Don't you dare think about it. Don't you dare. There's a pink elephant in the room, but don't you dare think about it. If you talk about it. You are in so much trouble. Don't you dare think about it. And then every time you think about it, you have to punch yourself in the face because you thought about it. Mm-hmm. But how can you not think about it? Because the room can't exist without the elephant in it. The room, mm-hmm. the room was built around the elephant. The elephant couldn't fit in the doorway. The room was built around it, which means, wow. you know what I'm saying? Like you were born this way. Wow. It didn't sneak in. You were born this way. So. You were designed to think this way. You were designed to talk about the pink elephant because you were born to talk about it. I love what you said. And I find it so fascinating that you said that being Mormon helped you avoid the racism. Because I have a friend who is Asian and she says the same thing that righteousness equaled whiteness yeah in the evangelical movement there's actually a song Mm -hmm. called um most people that were in the evangelical movement um hate it Mm -hmm. along with myself but it's Mm -hmm. called white as snow i know i know um the song is white as snow though my sin were as scarlet lord i know that i'm clean and forgiven by the power of your blood by the wonder of your love i know that i have faith that i will be white as snow and she said that it was so it was heart wrenching for her when she would sing this in church because mm-hmm. she would look around and she would know that her goal, her ultimate goal in life, yep. was to become white. Yeah. And how conversion therapy was just one other tool for somebody to to essentially try to teach the Latina culture out of you Mm -hmm. to try to 
whitewash you, taking your entire identity and telling you you are not good Mm -hmm. unless you are a hyper-masculine flannel axe flare x country music listening listening man which by the way most women are not into (laughs) at all i remember one of my reparative therapy sessions was so frustrating because for me jesus was supposed to be the epitome of compassion right and so i always wanted to be a compassionate person and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so when someone, I, I mean, we were taught to turn the other cheek, right? So I thought that's what mm-hmm. you're supposed to do. But then one of my first um, conversion therapy um, therapists was like, you need to be more assertive. You need to tell your mom, who, by the way, I come from a Puerto Rican family and it's very much a patriarchy, again, because mm-hmm. fathers yeah. are yeah. not there. And so I'm used to, you know, when mom says something, you you don't want to get hit. You just do what she says, yep. right? Yep. And so I'm used to that. And here's my therapist telling me, you need to put your mom in her place. First of all, my thought is like, well, I appreciate living. So I would like to not do that. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> right? Um, like no one tells that woman what to do. But I was just like, that feels really unchristlike to tell someone you need to know your place. Do I know there's yep. scriptures that say that? Sure. But that just feels unchristlike to have to tell someone you need to know your place. You do not get to speak up and to start being more toxic, to start being less compassionate. And then because I was so focused on compassion, he he diagnosed me with the DSM four diagnosis of gender dysphoria. He diagnosed me as a transgender woman because he thought I identified too much with feminine qualities. And so here I am, I can, like, this memory was repressed back then because it was too scary to look at. But after making some peace with my trauma, I can remember clearly one of the times being beat up for being gay. I remember being in elementary school and wondering, are they right? Am I a girl? And am I gay? And then be, being like, having this, like, peace come over me and be like, no, you know, you're a boy. You're just a boy who likes boys and that's okay. And like being okay with that. And it was a fleeting moment because clearly that was not a safe thought and it was not safe to be okay with myself. But then I just learned to never go outside in recess because then the bullies would have access to me. But it's just so sad that the messages that they teach that are so racist and misogynistic. And then Mm -hmm. you can, you have these, I'm surprised that evangelicals have that racist song because Mormons have it too. In the Book of Mormon, the Latinos are the bad people and God cursed them with dark skin because they were bad. And so we have this song in Mormonism saying that you're only given this land if you live righteously. And you do these, uh, you do these really problematic, um, hand signs that are mimicking Native Americans with like the feathers in your, in your camp, like really racist tropes. And you're supposed to be singing this song, given this land if you live righteously. And so here I am, this Mexican kid being like, is God saying I'm going to be deported to Mexico, a place I've never been, if I'm not righteous? Like, is that what I'm singing here? So it's like literally propping up Manifest Destiny. And like, I'm singing this in church. So of course I would go to conversion therapy. Of course I would want to be white because what other models of living did I have in Utah, right? Like there, there were no other models. So I'm actually more shocked 
when I find people who are gay that didn't go through conversion therapy, because I have to wonder if they really believe, or maybe they just, did they just have better examples? They have more self-confidence. I don't know. I just deal with conversion therapy survivors every week, but I'm just fascinated when I meet someone who's gay and Mormon, but didn't go through that. I'm just shocked. It's heartbreaking, Sam. And I'm sorry that you went through that. And here's the thing. I don't know about you, but I get really sick and tired of hearing I'm sorry. And I know that I didn't go through conversion therapy. When I talk about what I survived, it's, I'm sorry. I mean, thank you. I, you know, it's, it's always that awkward moment. I love that you said that because most of the time I would agree with you that I'm tired of hearing sorry, but because I'm kind of thinking about it and and talking more about it, I will say that every single time someone comments on my video on TikTok and says that was horrible, you give me permission to admit that it was because very true because when those memories come up and when I'm triggered and I was not prepared for that trigger, whether it's comfortable or not in that moment, I believe what I was taught in that moment. Because when you talked about purity culture and making it so difficult to be intimate with your partner, because suddenly it was no, 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 no. And now you can like, how do you deal with that? And there's all this trauma. That's exactly what it's like. There have been so many times I mean, I'm, I'm very sex positive. I, you know, whatever you want to do, what you want to do is fine. But now that I'm making peace with my, with my trauma and I'm not just associating anymore, I'm becoming a fuller person like I used to be. It's really hard to have moments when I want to go out on the town and feel dirty because old Sam comes back. And sometimes mm. it's even hard to be intimate with my husband because old Sam is still there who feels guilty for what he's doing. And I have to repeat to myself sometimes, you're married, it's okay. You're married, it's okay. Because even though I know it's silly that Mormons would not be okay with my marriage because it's a you know man-on-man marriage, just telling myself you're married, it's okay, somehow tells past Sam that what he's doing is okay because he always longed to find his eternal companion. Because for Mormons, marriage is huge. Marriage is everything. You yep. can't go to heaven without marriage. And so marriage mm. was like the thing I wanted. It just, I always wanted it with a guy, right? And so when, when I say that, like, I'm able to calm down, but there's so much purity culture trauma that just comes up when you least expect it. And the only thing you can do is honor it and say, you know what? I guess we're just going to need to cuddle because right now I cannot be intimate and we need to acknowledge that. And then, yeah. you know, if you can go away, maybe you can start up again. Who knows? But it's, it's. And it's hard to find a partner who understands that trauma. I can only imagine what it's like to be with an evangelical or to be with a man who was not raised as a woman in purity culture, who has no idea what it was like for you. And and sure, they have their own level of, of purity culture trauma. But oh my God, it's not the same for women. And I, and I, I can imagine it would be so difficult to have them have compassion for that because they don't get it. And I'm super lucky that my husband also went through the same thing. Yeah, I. it's so interesting what you said, that just the phrase, it's okay, you're married, because it's okay even if you're not. Right. And <laughs> I have to tell myself, 
it's okay you're married and it's okay even if you're not right like i like that's that is a mantra it's not like not um i don't have normal mantras like people that escaped uh cults they don't have normal mantras we're not like work hard and you'll get what you're you know (laughs) no we have like it's okay. You're married. It's okay. You're married. It's okay if you're not married. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You know, like these things that we say. Yeah. But it's true. It's okay if you're not married. Thank you I'm for still... using the word escape. It is so important that we use that yeah. language. Yeah. I was, I learned that very early on when I got on TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, there was somebody that I, I was on their live and I said that I walked away. And they looked at me and very sternly said, you didn't walk away from anything. You escaped. And I was like, did I? Did I though? Like I didn't, I wasn't, there wasn't anybody chasing me. But when I read my journal entries. Oh man. I see somebody that if, if I knew somebody that was in that position right now, Mm -hmm. I would move heaven and earth yep. to get them into a hospital. Yep. Level of manipulation is so intense. Yes. I like to wrap up with two things. One, where are you going today? What are you doing to help for this ideology to end with our generation? And I know that's like a lot to bite off because it's yeah. conversion therapy. And it's, um, you know, like right now there's a major war on. Yeah. LGBTQIA trans movement. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, you know what I'm saying though. Like, mm-hmm. how are we moving? How are you helping move right. this forward? That's one. And then two, I like to just ask a couple really lighthearted questions at the end. Yeah. Um, yes, I definitely want to ask answer that question of what am I doing to, to help it end in this generation? Uh, but for that most recent question, uh, how do I tell myself? Uh, actually, it's interesting because it was partly came from rent. Um, what finally pushed me out was, um, you know, so I was with the specialist and I was not happy with the idea that I was going to have to make peace, that it was always going to be there. And I was eventually going to cheat on my wife. A friend of mine had a pen pal, um, and she wanted to meet him, but she didn't want to go alone because you you know, never know. Cause strange man, mm-hmm. uh, sure he's gay, but you know, still you never know. Right. So she asked if I would accompany her just, you know, so she would keep safe. And knowing that this guy was gay and knowing that I was in conversion therapy, she's like, is this going to be okay for you? And at the time I was like, still, you know, wearing flannel, lowering my voice saying, gosh, darn it. That's crazy. You know, so please tell me, please tell me that somehow you developed a Southern accent with this. Cause this would make my day. I tried. I, I Oh my well, gosh. I tried. I tried. Oh gosh. Because I went to I Houston love- on my mission. And so oh, I had the exposure. Gosh. So anyway, uh, so I, I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I, I got it. You know? And she's like, okay, so let's go. And what's sad is like she showed me a picture of him before we went and I bit my fist, which is sad because I was trying to do all these stereotypical straight guy things, which is like, dang, look at that girl, you know, and you bite your fist type of thing. And I was saying stuff like that, like, dude, look at that girl. And I would like bite my fist. Like, scream, like, like, James Dean? Like, all of a sudden you turned into Fonz from Happy Days? I was like, trying. <laughs> but anyway, it was interesting because I was so used to trying these things 
But I had this uncontrollable urge because he was hot. This guy was hot. And I was like, oh, dang. And then I bit my my fist uncontrollably because I didn't want to feel attracted to him. And then I was like, I wonder if that's why guys bite their fists. Are they trying not to be attracted to girls? And suddenly I was like, oh, my God, maybe that's what this is. And so I almost had this little tinge of like, see, this is normal for you. But I like shoved it down. I shoved it down, whatever. And we met this guy and it was fine. And I was like, well, whatever. I'm not gay. No, whatever. And, you know, I was trying to like, I'm sure he saw through it, through this whole act of me being like, oh, no, I'm not gay, whatever. And he gave me this hug before I left. And I tell you what, like, I, I don't know. Oh, wait, you're about my age. So remember AOL where it would go like, you know, that little yes, as it was totally. loading up. Yeah, I swear yeah. I heard that sound. It's like my brain turned on for the first time in my life. And it's like this feeling of this other gay man in your holding you in his arms. This is what love feels like. Live this way. And I was just like, I will move heaven and earth to feel this way for the rest of my life. This yep. feels like ecstasy. Like I had, I've never done drugs, but like I can imagine that what it felt like because it was just electric. And that's a, a reason why it pushed me to give it a try. So for me, that song from Rent, There's Only Us, There's Only This, Forget Regret, or Life is Yours to Miss. No other path, no other way, no day but today. And so when I, so when my trauma comes up and I am suicidal again and, and everything is just a complete fucking mess, my husband knows that he has to say there's only us because that's my safe word. That brings me home and it reminds me why I'm here. It reminds me that I survived and that I am doing everything to make sure that I am, I am flipping them the bird by proving them that my happiness cannot be diminished and they cannot take away happiness from me. Because no matter how much they try, I found it. And they're wrong. Yeah. I mean, you and I have a connection to, to rent. Yeah. That's, that and Wicked don't get me started oh, with defying gravity. <laughs> yeah. So mm. what am I doing to help get this ended in our generation? I am trying through my TikTok and through my group to actually, I mean, I love that you said I didn't, I didn't go through conversion therapy, but I can connect, right? Mm -hmm. obviously it would be problematic to ask straight people to say that they're conversion therapy survivors. But I do try to use the term sojice as often as possible because I say, if you are queer, you are a conversion therapy survivor because I guarantee you, you've had at least yeah. some situations in which someone was trying to change your sexual orientation or your gender identity expression. Some form of, every form of homophobia is conversion therapy. It just depends on your intensity level of exposure. That's the only mm -hmm. difference between me and any other gay person down walking down the street is the intensity mm -hmm. of conversion therapy. And on that note, everyone who's an evangelical left a cult, you experience the same trauma that I did. It had different colors. It had different shades, but the trauma is the same. And when people do that, they can do what you said. When women stop fighting against each other, when minorities stop fighting against each other, suddenly we will have a strength that has never existed before because then the only enemy is our common enemy and it's the patriarchy. Yeah, so true. Um, okay, fun questions. What is your favorite book? Oh, God. Oh, you can't ask me that. Oh, God. 
I'm going to have to go with my latest favorite. Um, I would say, no, I have to go with my latest favorite. So just, it's very personal. It's um, You Talk Like a White Girl by, by Hulisa Arce. Um, just, it's, it's so hard to deconstruct um, my internalized white supremacy because I've never been given voices like Hulisa. And when I read her book, I've read it like three times. When I read her book, I hear my own life story. And it's just so incredibly healing to say, yes, it's okay to be brown. And it, I don't have to identify as white. And she goes into the history on why Mexicans are called white and how we're still excluded from white spaces. We're excluded from black spaces. We're never in either space. And it's okay to have our own space. I just absolutely love mm-hmm. it. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Favorite song? I hate you. Ah, what? You know. can't do this. Okay. I will have to say a song that has always been there with me is um, Julie Andrews, I Have Confidence from the Sound of Music. Oh my gosh. I love you. <laughs> Matter of fact, I was singing it today because I was so anxious for this. I was oh. like, Sam, you need to have confidence. Just sing Julie Andrews. And then I sang the confidence song. Julie Andrews, she's just, she's perfect. Um, movie, favorite movie. Oh, shoot. Um, I mean, there's a lot. Oh, gosh. I know. I'm the worst. You are. Okay. I have to be like, but in what genre? Um, okay. Right. I will have to say The Matrix because... I think it was one of the first intellectual ways that I was able to kind of loosen and shake up the the chains that was in my mind and say, hey, maybe your world experience, like in, I knew cognitively that my world was not the only world that existed, but it was the first time when it's like, are you sure the way you see the world absolutely has to be the way the truth and the life? Are you sure? Because it may not be this way. And it was the first time I was like, okay maybe not maybe love it well sam you're a beautiful person thank you and i'm thankful that i get to call you friend and thank you so much for coming on here and you're welcome back anytime i mean i just i appreciate you and your perspective um stretches my thinking and anybody that stretches my thinking and helps me see things from a different perspective and educates me from a different perspective has my heart yeah so thank you same to you i absolutely love your content and whenever i hear about straight people talk about the gendered dynamics they have in their relationships i learn something about my own and i Mm. i love the things that that we can teach each other through our differences. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. And yeah, everybody, please go follow Sam on TikTok. I'm going to link his socials down below. Please go follow him. You won't be disappointed. It's fascinating. So he teaches a lot about how to be a really great ally. And I think that y'all should go look at that. So I think you're wonderful. Thank you. So thank you. Hugs. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you are kind to yourself and to others. If you are interested in supporting this show, please click the link at the bottom to my Patreon. 
These shows take a lot of time and resources, and any support is appreciated. If you are interested in being a guest, please email the show at focusonyourownfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Inside of the show notes, you will find the links to mine and the guests' socials. Please give us a follow. We look forward to talking with you and connecting with you.